I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. I am? Yes. Unbelievable. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Been surrounded by a bunch of thespians acting things out here in the studio tonight, and it, it got me disjointed. I wasn't listening to what was happening. Listen, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, petition you. Uh, we recognize that you are in heaven, we are on earth, and you hear us. And so we ask you to be with us and help us tonight. Bless those who are seeking for truth and help us to impart some of it. And uh, where we're wrong, forgive us. Bless our uh, director and sound and volunteers, people doing the phones, and everybody who supports the ministry. We love you, Lord. We seek you in Jesus' name. Amen. It appears uh, that 2017 is a fail in term of guests. I've chummed the waters, I've thrown out baited lines, only to, at the end of the day, land just a few on deck. So all I can say, it wasn't supposed to be. For this reason, we're going to use the year to provide people exiting Mormonism a set of important clarifications that we believe will assist them in their journey out and into a genuine Christian walk. More on that later. Uh, also, let me plug our website store where you can find all manner of reasonably priced objects to purchase. And of course, if you can't purchase uh, the books, you can uh, email us and ask for them and we'll get them to you. Uh, but there's also TV uh, shirts and music and films and everything. It's really loud in here, isn't it? Oh, okay. And we'd also petition you, if you are led and so inclined, to do two things for us. Uh, include our ministry in your prayers, if you would. It would mean so much to our survival and my ability to stay, uh, keep from being derailed. And secondly, tell your family and friends about the ministry. To date, we have over a thousand hour-long presentations of information to be considered, both with shows and then verse-by-verse -verse teachings, five books and other things aimed at helping getting people to think and believe in God without religion. So if so led, tell your friends about these resources, uh, which are all free to Seeking Souls. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, I'm not going to present anything, uh, at least from my view tonight. 
I'm not going to give you commentary. I'm simply going to read, I think, five passages from the Word. Uh, now, I haven't prepared these verses, but as I studied this past week, they came up as I was just reading through the Word, and they just popped out at me. And so I just kind of took a napkin and wrote them down. And uh, I am going, I'm not going to make any commentary, but I will add some emphasis to the syllables. So there will be a commentary in it, but uh, it won't be uh, words of my explaining the verse or anything like that. And I'm just going to read them, and I just want you to hear what the verses say. And you, you decide what, how it strikes you. Because maybe it doesn't strike you uh, differently or, or at all, but it did me. So here we go. Five passages. Exodus 33:20, And God said to Moses, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. That's the first one. Deuteronomy 4.39 Know therefore this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath, there is none else. Number three, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And then the book of Revelation, the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. And then finally, Revelation 3, 30, uh, excuse me, 20. Uh, 20 through 22. And it says, Jesus speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Those are the five passages. Just to consider, just thought we'd do that. And with that, why don't we go to our board of direction. Before we had Adams Road and Matt Slick and a few other shows in between, we left off discussing the gospel, the good news. Uh, the presence of the good news automatically brings us to several questions, which we're going to be talking about through the rest of the show and for the next couple weeks. Whom, if this is proper English, is the good news for? Which we defined several weeks back as Jesus came and did what we could not do. And that all who look to him and his finished work by faith are saved by God's grace from sin and death, becoming children of God. We, I took the liberty to kind of 
define the good news in that way. We noted that there was nothing in that about the Trinity, nothing about eternal punishment, nothing about eschatology, nothing about you must read the Bible every day, nothing you must pray every day, nothing else, just Jesus came and did what we could not do. All who look to him and his finished work in faith are saved by God's grace from sin and death and become his children. That's what we said. Now, it could be errant, there could be better definition of the gospel, but that's how I sort of uh, summarized it. So in the face of all this, who is the good news for? That's where now we're at at this point. Is it for some men and women, or is it for all men and women? And how is it received? Does God push it into a limited number of people according to his good pleasure and will, or does he offer it to all people and allow them to choose to receive it or not? This is where we're at. We've gone through the pre-existence. We've gone through the Godhead. We've gone through the fall. We've gone through all, Satan. We've talked all about that now. We introduced the gospel. We're coming up to the end of the year, the gospel. And now we have to ask ourselves, who is it for and how is it received? The debates over the answer have raged on for a long time. Uh, nothing new within the body of believers. Think about this. Today, we have guys like... Uh, Dr. Uh, Leighton Flowers versus Dr. James White. Leighton Flowers says we choose, and it's for everybody. Dr. James White says God puts it in certain people, and it's only for them, and there's no choice about it. Both good Christians. But that's this time. Yesteryear, we had Calvin versus a guy named Arminius. And then before them, we had Luther and a guy named Erasmus. And then before them, we had a guy named Augustine and another guy named Pelagius. This argument has gone on all the way back to 350 and probably before, but especially around 350 AD. And there have always been sides of very good people who take both. It's interesting that with the exception of Flowers and White, at least for the time being anyway, all the rest of these men are long dead and gone. And they're either with God or they're not. In spite of their views and opinions and education and insights, they either are with him or they're not. What was it that allowed Augustine and Pelagius and Luther and Erasmus and Calvin and Arminius, what was it that got them into God's presence at their death? And, or what was it that kept them out of his presence? And being that they all accepted the gospel as it was loosely termed by me and given by other people, being that they all embraced that, they all would probably be with God. So their opinions really didn't matter, did they? Was it their views that put them with God? Hardly. In the end, I believe the Bible teaches that it will be whether they receive the good news by faith. Really or not, and that Jesus came and did what we could not do, and all who look to him and his finished work by faith are saved by the grace of God from sin and death and become his children. I liken all the disparate, not desperate, but disparate views out there in the body, even though I admittedly have my own views, 
to a giant family holding a picnic. I've drone the, drone, I've drone them. I've drone them on the board. And the picnic is, you know, there's hundreds of, of family members in this picnic. And they all are there for fun and games and food and love. But attending the picnic every year are these two very argumentative brothers. And every time you get together at the family gathering and everybody's there to just, let's just enjoy the food and the chicken and the games and the laughter and whatever else people are doing, these two bring their overbearing opinions to the picnic and they start going at it over everything under the sun. And so everyone's getting along except these two brothers and once they get going, it starts to spread and they start riling other, other people up and pretty soon there's a tension. Have you ever been to a family function where there's tension? I have. And it, you can sense it. And, and then there's some finger pointing and some families erupt into downright fights. Well, this happens every time at the family picnic of the body. So to me, it's, it's like the body. We, we all could probably, if we could get rid of those two brothers, who are insist on bringing this stuff to the table, we could all probably fill, you know, the, the Coliseum. <laughs> Just kidding. We could probably fill, you know, Anaheim Stadium or, or, Angel, or Giant Stadium, whatever stadium there is, probably dozens of those stadiums, and all get along if we could keep those guys from doing that to us. Okay? So what's the solution? First of all, I believe, and let me go to the board here, uh, I think that the rest of the family has to kind of gently, by the Spirit, tell these brothers to make a choice. One, either shut up and just leave the opinions to another day when it's not the picnic time when it's not the gathering. Or two, if they can't do this and do this, to sit in the corner, away out in a field. For those two to go out into the field and to take their thing and just let the rest of the body, even though there's some who agree with this one and there's some who agree with that one, but let the rest of them enjoy the picnic. Okay, <clears throat> but the family, and it's so funny because here's where the power is, but no one does it when you get to these family situations. These guys always rule the roost. I know because I used to be one of them. So you, they control the tenor of the whole group, but the whole group could easily just say, but they're really hesitant to do it because they're not like these guys. They're more polite. They're more fearful, but they can just say, listen, can you please, not shut up, but can you just keep your opinions to another time and come enjoy the, the, the tug of war and the relay races and the swimming and the food? Or can you go over somewhere else and just not bring it here if you can't stop yourselves? This is a major call of Aletheia Ministries, I believe, to the world of Christian believers. And that is to try to, I'm not preaching ecumenism, you certainly will hear me in our church services preach what I believe is true. But if we can 
sort of unite all and tell the know-it-alls, tell the overzealous, tell the dogmatists, the you better do it as I say it or you're going to hell us, the this-sis and the that-ists, that their opinions are welcome. But they, they have a place and, and, and it, it shouldn't be when the body's gathered because, I mean, they can express them, but we've got to figure out some way where the expression doesn't cause this division between the, the body. And I'm not sure there's really been a, a, a great effort at this other than the groups that come along and say, all roads lead to heaven. We can't say that. We have to admit that the gospel is there. Or the groups that take such a liberal swath and say it's universalism. We can't say that if we're followers of the Bible. But there's got to be some middle ground where we can say these guys have got to somehow quell what they're constantly sharing and pushing and saying to other people. And so how that looks is, and this is wild for some, if a Mormon comes to the picnic and the Mormon says, I believe that Jesus was born and of a virgin and lived a life and died and shed his blood and I am saved by my faith on him by grace and I become a child of God through that. They are part of the picnic. If the Mormon starts saying, Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith, temple must at the picnic, we say, can you, can you leave that stuff out? Just like we would tell a Calvinist who decides that in the group they have to constantly tell everybody that there is an elect group of people and that if you aren't this, that you'll do that or any other ist or ism. If they can't come and just join the body, but they have to start breaking it up, no matter who they are, then we talk about those other options for them. The good news, if it's at the core of a person, we have to trust that they are professing truly and that the spirit is working either on them or is thriving in them. We have to trust that. And if they have ideas about how to do church and how to do religion and what theology is right, we have to try to say at the picnic, we got to let that go, okay? And then we allow all men and women who have received the good news to be seen as family in the faith. Uh, so the final thing before we go on is then how do you do life when we're not at a picnic? That's the next question. This is a Saturday event that happens you know, once a year, or this is a Sunday event that happens every week. This is the body gathering together. How do you do it when, when everybody's on their own life? What do you do? How, do? how does that work? And that's when these opinions are valuable and people are allowed to express them and share them and, and teach them and say what they want. And then we use the spirit and we use the word and we use the fruit of the spirit to discern what has value and what does not. But that can be done as we gather up in the groups or churches that we want to. And this leads me to the final point. It seems to me that the onus for making points occurs on the gatherings on Sunday. 
and that it's a pastor congregate re relationship that's going on. The pastor does his best to show the views that that pastor is teaching and the congregate does their best to listen. And if the congregate does not like what the pastor says, according to the spirit, according to the word and according to the fruit of the spirit that the doctrine teaches, those three things, they vote with their feet and they leave to find another church where the pastor teaches what is in harmony with their beliefs. And that way, the pastors can just have to realize, it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach the truth the best of my ability, or I'm going to soft sell things so I can keep people in the seats. And the congregates are going to go to the place where they like a soft sell, or they like the hard sell, or they like five-point Calvinism, or they like Mormonism, and we leave all the rest of it up to God. We're working together through this to try to see if there's a way where within the body, maybe not today, but maybe a hundred years from now, can kind of put all these things out and let the picnic go on. I hope that made some sense in our From the Board. Let's continue our discussion uh, on the gospel tonight before we open up the phone lines. Uh, in accordance to what I just said, I'm going to teach what I believe to be true now. Uh, this is a show, and I always will try to teach what I believe to be true. But I'm not going to criticize those who view things differently. You'll see what that is in a second. In the face of the good news we discussed five weeks ago, we come back to that question I posed at the beginning of the show. Who is the gospel for, and how is it received? On the question of who is it for, there are some general thoughts in the body of believers. Some say the gospel is only for God's elect. Others say it is for all human beings. I personally believe that the good news is for all human beings. And I frankly believe even more so that it will, the gospel, sometime and in some way affect all human beings in the positive whether they receive it here or not in this life, I do believe that Christ has had the victory and the good news will affect positively all human beings in one way or another. But the bigger question is how is the gospel received? What I mean by this is, is it imposed upon human beings, those who God has elected by his own free will, or do human beings choose to receive it or reject it? Now, I'm not going to attack the views of the five-point Calvinists who claim that free will does not exist, and it's God who elects and decides who will receive the good news and who will not, and those who do are saved into everlasting life, and those who God does not elect will burn forever in hell. I'm, not going, I'm trying to cut back on attacking the positions anymore. That's a view that they have, and they have their right to it, and there's many good Christians who follow that worldview. But I want to say, first, the Spirit is primary and preferential. This is my view. The Spirit tells me that this reform view is errant. That's just the Spirit. It tells me there's something not right with that view. No matter how much I intellectually can read R.C. Sproul and try to gather it, I can get it intellectually, but my heart, my spirit says no. So I have to go to Scripture which is point two, the scripture is secondary, but it is referential. 
So, of course, I believe that Scripture, contextually read and understood, supports what the Spirit tells me about free will. Uh, but I, so I read the Scripture, and I see free will all over it. But I have to recognize that the Calvinist sees and reads Scripture and sees predestination and determinism. That's a word for this is how it will be. The way they read it. So, so far, the Spirit to a Calvinist says it's right, and the Word to a Calvinist says it's right, but a, the Spirit to me says no, and the Word says no. So then what do we do? We go to the third little rule of the bromide, and that is church history is tertiary and deferential. We don't wipe it out. We can defer to it, and we can, we can honestly honor it but we don't use it to establish our theology. We use the Spirit and the Word. So when the Spirit doesn't solve the problem and the Word doesn't solve the problem, then we go to the third thing, and that is what has happened in the history of the church relative to the subject of free will. And I do not believe that the ancient views establish present doctrine. There's too many contradictions with the early church fathers for it to serve that, but we can look to see what did they at least say about free will or determinism. And this will give us a third witness. And so I'm not against it, but I just don't see it as a primary focus to understand doctrine. So to me, the closer we get to the apostles, to the apostolic period with the church fathers, the closer we get, the closer we're going to get to how they thought the apostles. The further away we get from the apostles, from, you know, like about 90 A.D. or, you know, or 70 A.D., 90 A.D., somewhere in there, the further we get away from those dates, the less likely the person who's voicing their opinion is in harmony with the apostles. But the closer we get to when the apostles live, the more harmony, I believe, we will have of what the apostles taught. Okay? So, of interest, one of the most respected scholars of Reformed theology, Calvinism. Her name is Lorraine Botner. She does not believe in free will. She admits that there are really no teachings at all to support determinism, to support uh, no free will prior to the life of a man named Augustine. Augustine was thriving, living, teaching. I'm just going to say the mid-300s. Okay, so at the time of Augustine, we start to get doctrine and thought on determinism and Reformed theology. Augustine greatly influenced Calvin, who would come later. Okay, but before Augustine, from 350 backward toward the apostles, nothing, nothing about determinism. Nothing about there not being free will. Nothing about predestination, foreordination. Nothing about election. Nothing about any of those topics relative to the subject of free will. So the question we have to say is, did those guys talk about free will at all? Um, they talked about it abundantly. It was all over the place. And we're going to wrap up before we go to the phones with some quotes. And next week, I'm going to continue on with some of the quotes, and we're going to talk about them. So I'm going to give you some of the earliest guys closest to the apostles and what they had to say. And then we're going to uh, wrap it up. And then next week, we'll continue on reading what those guys said all the way up to Augustine. 
325, 350, I can't remember. And his introduction, because he was a Gnostic, and the Gnostics had a great tie into the finger pointing of an election. And so Augustine, I believe, embraced that. And that and, but, but prior to that, we don't have that, okay? So it was taught, determinism was not. So either Augustine in the 300s knew something that the early church guys and the apostles, well, I can't say that, it's not fair. We'll just say the early church guys did not know or he was wrong, okay? So John Calvin once wrote this. Moreover, although the Greek fathers, he's talking about these early guys, above others, and especially Chrysostom, have exceeded due bounds in extolling the powers of the human will, yet all ancient theologians, with the exception of Augustine, are so confused, vacillating, and contradictory on this subject that no certainty can be obtained from their writings. So Calvin, who adopted what, Cal what Augustine had to say, said, if you go back earlier, they are so messed up in what they had to say, you can't really tell what is true. And I, I, with all due respect, I cannot see that as true whatsoever. And most people who support free will, who look at what the early church guys said, say, no, it's really clear. There wasn't any real fight at all among them. So when I read these to you, and we'll read a few, you say if it sounds confused, vacillating, contradictory, or if it sounds like it's fairly unified on what the early church guys closest to the apostles believed. We will soon see the early church consensus stands against, against, in opposition to the Augustinian reformed, it's called monergist, the monergist interpretation of predestination, which means the way that Augustine and Calvin interpreted Romans chapters 9 through 11 did not exist in the early church fathers. It didn't exist until 300-something A.D. with Augustine. For your information, fans of uh, a sovereign predestination, meaning God pointing at some select and saying, you will be saved, the rest of you, I'm not going to point to you, so you're not. They're known as monergists. And what that word means is it's one way. It's from a monarchy. He, I don't know if it's from a monarchy, but I think it is. He points, he decides, he elects, it's over. That's called monergism. And the other view is called synergism. A synergist says God uh, uh, presents the good news and it's a two-way street. God presents and people receive. It's like what Jesus said at Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock if you open. That to me is a synergistic uh, a scripture showing that God offers salvation, but men must respond. That is not a Calvinistic view. The Calvinistic is a monergist response. The monarchy uh, points to you and says, you have it and you don't, and that's all there is to it. There's nothing that we do about it, okay? So, uh, even more damaging to the Augustinian monergist tradition is the fact that Augustine did not understand Greek. And so Augustine translated the scripture from a Latin perspective. And the Latin perspective of Romans 9 through 11 is, is a very different perspective than from the Greek perspective. And so 
that led him to then interpret those uh, passages in a very monergistic sense. And that has carried forward, rolled forward. In fact, is snowballing forward in our day and age. Um, again, at the picnic, stand side by side with a Calvinist, a monergist. But I just don't know if they would stand next to uh, a synergist and a, a free will uh, Baptist or Christian. Greg Boyd doesn't have a great reputation in the evangelical world. I like him, his mind. He says, this in part explains why Calvin cannot cite anti-Nicene fathers against his contemporary libertarian opponents. For example, in a debate with a man called Picuus. Boyd continues, hence when Calvin debates Picuus on the freedom of the will, Calvin cites Augustine abundantly, but no early church fathers are cited. Why? Because no early church fathers supported the monergist view, simply put. So let's look at some quotes really quickly. Clement of Rome, he died around 99 AD, all right? Tradition has identified him with the Clement who's mentioned in Philippians 4.3 who would have known Peter and Paul personally. He's the third or fourth bishop of Rome. Clement of Rome wrote, quote, For no other reason does God punish the sinner, either in the present or future world, except because he knows that the sinner was able to conquer, but neglected to gain the victory. Was able is a clear definition of will. Was able. Okay, it's good, it's not decisive, it's not one of the best quotes, but it's a good one. There's something called the Epistle of Mathetes, Diognetus, uh, the first or second century attributed to Justin Martyr. I don't know if it was. The true author of the epistle is unknown. It seems to have been a disciple. And the disciple said in one place, just to give you some background, I do not speak of things strange to me, nor do I aim at anything inconsistent with right reason. But having been a disciple of the apostles, I am become a teacher of the Gentiles. This is what this person, this author says of himself. And what does he say? He says, as a king sends his son, who is also a king, so sent he him. As God, he sent him. As to man, he sent him. As a savior, he sent him. And as seeking to persuade, not to compel us. For violence has no place in the character of God. As calling us, he sent him. Not as vengefully pursuing us. As loving us, he sent us. Not as judging us. Also, he said, and do not wonder that a man may become an imitator of God. He can if he is willing. If he's willing. There's another slight indicator of the, the will being present in the early church father's writings. Ignatius of Antioch, 30 to 107 AD. That's pretty close. Traditionally held to be an apostle of John and Peter, he said... And there is set before us life upon our observance of God's precepts, but death as a result of disobedience. And everyone, according to the choice he makes, shall go to his own place. Let us flee from death and make choice of life. That's Ignatius 30 to 110. 
That's pretty close. He also said, if anyone is truly religious, he is a man of God. But if he is irreligious, he is a man of the devil, made such not by nature, but by his own choice. This is radical departure from the Calvinistic thought that, you know, you don't have a choice. You are evil until you, he says quite differently, we by nature are not as evil as we have been allowed to believe. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's by our choice that we have allowed ourselves to go the place where we want. Uh, it's a huge subject. Finally, uh, The Shepherd of Hermas, it's a book. It was quoted by a Christian monk named John Cassian, who used the, using the book said, for it is not given only to David to think what is good of himself, nor is it denied to us naturally to think or imagine anything that is good. It cannot be doubted that there are by nature some seeds of goodness in every soul implanted by the kindness of the Creator. But unless these are quickened by the assistance of God, they will not be able to attain an increase of perfection. For, as the blessed apostle says, Neither is he that planteth anything, nor he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Stay with me, that's a, that's a preamble. But that freedom of the will is to some degree in a man's own power is very clearly taught in the book Term the Pastor. That's the Shepherd of Hermas book, where two angels are said to be attached to each one of us, i.e. a good and a bad one while it lies at the man's own option to choose which he will follow. Reminds me of that, uh, sorry, to, but it reminds me of that Animal House movie where that guy is tempted and a devil pops up and he's like, Rah! and then the angel pops up and says, no, no. And, the, and, and this is right in harmony with what the shepherd of Hermas taught, which was considered actually canonical in the early uh, church. So here he says, you know, we have the two who are petitioning for our choice, but we have the choice. And I firmly believe we're responsible. I, I just cannot believe anything but our responsibility before the living God. Now, our nature may desire for the devil, but he empowers us. He empowers us to overcome that temptation. That's always remembered. It's not of our own, but we have the choice. That's the thing. It's not our power, but we have the choice. He goes on and he says, uh, and therefore the will always remains free in man and can either neglect or delight in the grace of God for the apostle would not have commanded saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling had he not known that it could be advanced or neglected by us. Had he not known that it could be advanced or neglected by us, but that men might not fancy that they had no need of divine aid for the work of salvation, he subjoins, he adds, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And therefore he warns Timothy and says, neglect not the grace of God which is in you. Don't choose to neglect it, is what he says. And again, for which cause I exhort thee to stir up the grace of God which is in you. That's uh, from John Cassian. Next week, we're going to continue on with Justin Martyr, circa 100 to 165. That's only halfway to Augustine. And Justin Martyr, I have so many quotes here. 
He is a huge proponent of the free will of an individual to choose the devil angel or the angel of light, to choose God, to choose the spirit, or to choose the flesh, and that all of us will be responsible for the choices we choose to make. Let's uh, take a minute and check out this spot, and then we're going to come back to Durango, Colorado, to Wyatt. Bible. Sick of being told what to believe by men and pastors? You have the right, read the Word of God by the Spirit and let God tell you what to believe and then believe it. You don't have to agree with me or anybody else, but your liberty is not going to come by not doing anything. Your liberty comes by reading the Word of God. I should add an addendum to that. Your liberty comes, I haven't really listened to that, comes by reading the Word of God, which leads you to knowing Christ Jesus and uh, uh, the Father who sent Him. It's through them that the liberty comes, but the reading the Word of God introduces us more and more to Him. That's what is meant. Let's go to Wyatt in Durango, Colorado. Wyatt, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how you doing, Sean? Doing well, how are you? Hey, how are you doing? Um, I uh, found, about, found out about your uh, ministry uh, uh, while I was still Mormon, but now I'm not. But anyways, I have a question for you about, um, whatchamacallit, um, about uh, you said that during this program that the Spirit is first and the Scripture is secondary. That's how you, I uh, see it. explain that for me? Yeah, I, I see that, uh, and it's not to the exclusion, but I see that as the order. And the reason is, is because for hundreds of years in the Christian church, the word was not available in full. It wasn't, no one could read it, and it wasn't really decided on what it was completely. There were parts. And so we take the whole word of God because that's how we understand the whole word. And if it wasn't available as the whole word, then we know that that was not what was leading the early Christians. It was the spirit and the apostolic direction and those who were influenced by the apostles 
who could give them direction, etc. But as the apostles began to fade out, the word started to become more prevalent. And the, but the whole time the Spirit was working, if, if we just use the word and we put the word first, what it seems to end up, in my opinion, is division. Every single group who says, we are Bereans, we study the word, this is what it says, has another group out there who are Bereans who study the word and disagree with them. On, on one of 100 or 200 or 500 points, the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love, peace, joy, long-suffering. That is what should lead us with the word supplementing what our beliefs might be. And if someone comes up and says, listen, I think it's okay to kill my neighbor, we say, wait a second, that's spirit. Let's check to see what the word says. Let's use it as a reference. And, uh, and, and so that's what I mean by that, Wyatt. Well, um, I don't see that as uh, any different from what the Mormons say when they say that I prayed there more all night and uh, through five prayer, and the Spirit told me that the Book of Mormon was true. Well, um, I, yeah. can, I can tell you, I think, Wyatt, the difference is, and I can see how you could say it's the same thing. One, the LDS say they're going by the Spirit, but in reality, what they are going by is the teachings of their forefather leaders. And if the spirit contradicts what their forefather leaders say, then their spirit is wrong and they are excommunicated or kicked out of the church. And so their spirit is only really confirming what the leaders have told them. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting that at all. I am suggesting that the spirit is, is love. Mm -hmm. and, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. And anything that comes to us that we say is of the Spirit, it has to be in check with the Bible, not with men's interpretation of the Bible. Then we are left okay. accountable. So I think it is a little bit different. All right. I would, I would say that the Bible is the, is the final authority for the Christian life and practice. This is why I can say that the Mormons aren't Christians, for example, because what they teach goes against what the Scripture plainly says, uh, and uh, goes against Orthodox Christian teachings such as the Trinity, such as the, such as uh, Jesus was was eternal, not just the created being, but was eternal uh, from the beginning. They say that Jesus was uh, the Spirit. Uh, Son of uh, Spirit, Son of Elohim, God, along with uh, along with Lucifer. Right. So I would say that's why the Mormons aren't Christians because they go against Orthodox Christian teaching and go against the Scripture itself. Yeah, and I would agree with you when it comes to Mormonism. I think that Mormonism, in its body of doctrine, is not Christian. Mm -hmm. And but the problem is, is if we take what you're what you're saying right now. If you say Mormons are not Christian, Mormons, and then you go down the road and you say the reason Mormons are not Christian is because of this belief or that belief, we will go down a road where you're going to run into a Southern Baptist who's going to say these in the bot who say they're Christian are not Christian either because they haven't received this, and you're going to run into a Pentecostal who says these aren't of the body because they haven't spoken tongues by the Spirit to prove that they've really been born again. 
and you're gonna come to another one that says these aren't. And so I think we can backtrack, Wyatt, and say who, not what, not the, not the church, but who within the Mormon church says, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. By his shed blood, I am saved from my sin and death and hell and, uh, by faith, by God's grace. If someone says that and they're Mormon or Catholic or Baptist or Pentecostal, that is something we have to take at face value. Even if, Wyatt, they say Jesus was the brother of Satan. How can I say that? Because when I accepted Jesus and was born again and accepted into the body of Christ, I believe Jesus was the brother of Satan. I believe God had a body of flesh and bone. And I believed all the Mormon tenets. I simply came to know who Jesus was by the Spirit. And I was part of the body even though I remained LDS for another four years. So I think what you're saying, I understand what you're saying regarding the ism. But when we, when we start, and do you, would you agree with me that there are Latter-day Saints, there are Catholics that are saved Christians? Yes, I, yes, I wouldn't generalize based on that point, and I think That's my that point. you corrected me rightly when you, when you said that, but Mormonism is not, is not a Christian no. religion based, no. on, based on what I was saying before. Yeah. Um, right. Um, um, so that, so that's why, I'm, that's uh, why I say that because I do hold that the scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith for the Christian life and practice, and we should judge other, all other beliefs by that by that same word. Uh, Jesus said, "Unless you, unless that you believe that I am, you will die in your sins." Yeah. And I agree oh. with you. It is the canon, by, the measuring stick by which we measure things. But I have to say, that being agreed upon, Wyatt, that when we use the scripture as what you are kind of, you're not intimating this strictly, but if you're saying it's sola scriptura, which is something that Calvin came up with, if we start saying sola scriptura, then we start to say, really, that the scripture is really dictating to us everything we're supposed to know for our day and age. And that we're supposed that's to... Not sola, that's not sola scriptura, that's solo scriptura, not sola scriptura. Wait, sola oh. scriptura. Yeah, yeah, what you described to me was solo scriptura, scripture. the Bible, okay. Bible only. That's not what I'm saying. So, uh, sola scriptura, the Bible is the final authority. Okay. Uh, for Christian life and practice. So let me ask you, the only way I can work through this with you in my own mind is to ask you, so uh, what, what would you say about divorce? What would you say about widows in the church? What would you say about the hair length of a male? What would you say about women speaking in the church? What would you say about women covering their heads in the church? Uh, all those factors, what, what do you say? What do you say about w baptism? What do you say? And so when we start, I understand your point and I agree. I love the scripture and it does guide us. But I think when you start breaking it down, your, your position, uh, why it sounds really good, because it sounds like you're standing for God and his word. But when it breaks down to reality in this world, it does not play out that way. It plays out to this. So answer me, what do you do with those topics I just gave you 
when the scripture is the final authority? There, for the Christian, for the Christian life and practice, uh, the operations within the within the church, they may be disagreed upon amongst brethren. That's for Bible study. But for someone to be a Christian, um, they have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Okay. They have I, to believe I, I have that to say... Jesus died for them. Their sins, according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. I would have to. Um, I would have to say have to, to you. Believe. I would have to say to you, Wyatt, that I did not believe Jesus was who he says he was when I was saved, and I didn't believe Jesus was he says he was until later. And I personally today don't agree with the common accepted ontological view of God as Trinity. Am I not a Christian? The Lord God saved me and changed my life to the point where what does I... The Bible, if the Bible, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say he is? And do you agree with what the Bible says that Jesus is? My pr- is the question I would have for you. My, my point is I do agree with what the Bible says who Jesus is, but it's according to how I understand the Bible, and that is not concurrent with how other good brothers and sisters in the faith see him. And so we automatically, what you're describing, like I said, it sounds really good and official, but it does not play out in the hearts of individuals who are growing in the spirit, who are learning, who are, and, 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 and it's, so it's a tough dialogue because I know your heart and I know what you're saying and I agree with you, but you're not going to, even in, between you and I, we're not going to agree on the person of Christ and we're not going to agree on the Trinity. And I believe in my heart, because of your fervor and your, and your stance, that you're a wonderful Christian. And I know that I'm a Christian. It's it, it manifested in, in me by the Spirit. And John says we can know. So we have a problem now. Because you see even Jesus and God a certain way, and I see him a certain way. And what you're telling me, really, if we play it out, in the end, you would have to say... Sean, you're not a Christian. And that's what we do to everybody who doesn't conform to our view of what Christian is, taken from our view of the Bible. Does it make sense? Yeah, I would be careful to not uh, to say, you know, I would not uh, say that you aren't, you aren't a Christian. I'm going to say, what does the Bible say about Christ? What do you, uh, what do you believe about Christ? You know, what do you believe? who Christ is. Okay. Does your beliefs about Christ conform to what the Bible says about Christ? Okay. I personally had to change my doctrine a few times. Like I said, I found your soul. I was, I was a Mormon. Um, I think I messaged you a few times about, um, the, about the, uh, about the James Q passage, but, uh, or, or whatever it's called, the, uh, work, faith. Yeah. Faith without works is dead passage. But um, now, now I'm not uh, Mormon, and I agree with uh, the uh, with the Orthodox Christian view. And you've done a lot of good, but I'm just saying this: what you're saying here contradicts your whole entire mainstream. When you say that doctrine does not matter, uh, what I mean by that, the, then you then you have this entire mainstream that's contradictory, right? What I I know what, I know it's tough, and I, whenever you enter into these dialogues, and I say things like that, it automatically causes a a rejection. But what I mean by doctrine doesn't matter is that if doctrine is causing this, 
among believers who accept Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, doctrine does not matter. Love matters. And that's, that's right. the reason I say that. Doctrine, of course, matters. I, I spend all kinds of time in doctrines. So don't think that I mean it's just, oh, who cares? I'm not saying that, Wyatt. But I'm saying that when doctrine starts doing this, we've become like the scribes and Pharisees, and we have lost the point and purpose of Christ, which was love. Right. Now, I want to say one thing, my brother. You said Christ according to what the Bible says he is. I want to ask you something. Does the Bible say that Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal with the Father? Uh, Jesus said in John 8 that uh, before Abraham was, I am. Okay. Now, who else says I am? Uh, well, Jehovah said I am in uh, Exodus, right? Okay. I understand that's your interpretation of it. I understand that. Could, was Jesus saying, how, if Jesus is the I am, I'm just, I'm just going through using your, your way of saying this, Wyatt, that we use the Bible. If he's the I am, why does he not know some things? I'm just playing devil's kind of devil's advocate here with you. Why, oh, if he's the I am, to, uh, what the, I am. The fig tree argument, right? Uh, yeah, fig tree, tree yeah, end times, right? all of that. Why... Do we have a difference between the two, but we don't have the creedal assumptions of co-eternal, co-equal personage from all eternity? I know there's allusions in Scripture, but we don't have that emphatically stated in Scripture. You're telling me I need to believe in the Jesus that Scripture says. And my point is there are a lot of people who believe in Jesus, as Scripture says, who are not Trinitarians. I happen to be one of them. You would say, I, would you say I have to be a Trinitarian in, in order to truly have accepted what the Bible says about Jesus? Uh, not me, not me personally, not me personally, no, that's a side, that's a side discussion that we could have. And, Good. And I have a lot of fun with this, Sean, if uh, we could discuss the Trinity, but um, I don't think we have time for that show. I think you're right. Uh, time on this show. Hey, really good insights. Thank you for bringing some, some resistance to this because we're talking through it and you know that's the only thing we can do and try to reason with each other. And I appreciate your heart in reaching out reasonably and kindly with me and being patient with some of the stuff. Keep going, my brother. All right, God bless. God bless you, Wyatt. Bye-bye. We're wrapping it up. We don't have any time, uh, but I want you to know uh, ardently, uh, Jesus, God in the flesh to me. Uh, ardently, God the Father, truly, Holy Spirit, God in the Spirit, truly, uh, salvation by grace through faith, Jesus shed blood, the only way, the way, the truth, and the life, absolutely, Jesus alone. Do we worship Jesus? Absolutely. Is he our Lord and King? Yes. Uh, but these things are the way I see it and the way I believe it. There are people who have, I hate to keep saying this word, nuanced views in these areas who all claim Christ as Lord and Savior. Why do we decide that we can sit and say, no, you don't fit this litmus test on who a Christian is, you're out. You go to the Mormon church? Yes, I do. Do you believe Jesus is Lord and Savior? Yes, I do, I really do. Do you believe his shed blood Savior? Yes, I do, and I'm, I hear them, I read them, I get their emails. I'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt. 
Why argue with them over what Smith taught them any more than we argue with somebody who embraces what Wesley taught and, and all the other churches who do different things that are not embraced by the others. Trying to bring it in where there's more unity in Christ, less division over the non-essentials. And so that's where we're at. Join us next week. We're going to continue to talk about free will and the gospel relative to the early church fathers. See you here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light 